Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everybody, welcome to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast for myself, comedian and writer Dane Baptiste, my producer friend Howard Cohen, aka The Hizzer. Hello. BAFTA award winning yeah, Howard yeah, Cohen. Yeah, I told you you get sick yeah, of it. Pose the questions that need to be asked and we're talking everything from... Have you had a Beyond Burger? There's a good question. Have you had a Beyond Burger? I feel like that sounds very hipsterish. And oh now, yeah, yeah. Now plant-based, I'm... plant-based burger. Do you know what okay. Dane, as a man who likes a tasty burger... That's a tasty fucking burger, and there's no cow being killed from it. That's cool. Um, first of all, there's not any cows that are killed for burgers. Your typical gastro burger nowadays involves basically the wholesale slaughter of everyone's getting it. Like, because most burgers now is like you can get like those bacon strips as well. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. But and in it, tradition, it was a cow. This is a cowless meat enjoyable thing. I recommend the Beyond Burger. Good. Maybe they should sponsor the show. Now, here's my question, because. You're talking about the burger. Mm. The patty itself. Yes, that's what I'm doing. That's right, yeah. plant-based. Yes, yes. Now, when you say plant-based, is it like when you get like a vegetarian sausage and you can like see peas and stuff in it? No, no, no. Or is it like a corn base where it's like a... Mate, I fried my burger on Friday night when so I got oh, home. Oh, okay, cool. And three minutes on one side, three minutes on the other side, I ate it furiously. Because it's delicious. Oh. The veracity. <laughs> but here's my thing then. So then this plant-based, when you add the normal accoutrements to, your, to make your patty into mm. now a burger... Uh, are you having like lettuce and tomato? Yep, 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 yep. And then by that token, then as a plant-based burger, is that just not a really bit? Is that just not like a second and third stack mm. of patty? You need to try it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna we, try it to be continued when Dane's tried the Beyond Burger. I'm, 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 more I'm, honest burger, I'm not opposed to it. Yeah, I'm not opposed to it. You, I'm I'm it. Try it. I mean, I mean, anyway, if, if we I, ask all the questions, all the like questions, that. important questions, anything, anything. You know, we do, we do the reviews. We get in depth, and uh, and if you like the show, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. On today's show is a very esteemed British journalist. He has written for many major UK publications, including The Guardian, The Financial Times and The Iron Newspaper. And he is currently the political editor of The New Statesman. He was also the first political commentator to predict that Jeremy Corbyn would win the Labour leadership. It is the super mind and journalistic abilities of Stephen Bush. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming, Stephen. How are you? Not just professionally, how are you? Um, so, you know, personally... I'm an Arsenal fan, and that's obviously a source of great pain that we mm-hmm. we you know, don't need to sort of rake over over much. Uh, other than that, no, I'm really good. Um, I am so actually, this election's been great because I've I actually get so much reading done during general elections because obviously when you're on like trains to places, mm, yeah, yeah, you're just like, oh, I'll read a book. I always cool. feel I I I, I, yeah, I always feel I become so much more well read during election campaigns. I like that. I think yeah. that it allows for reading. I mean, I think the general noise of modern living doesn't really allow for reading outside of i guess digital digital uh i guess i want to say perusing rather than reading i think people peruse yeah, over people digital skim. articles and the like and they skim but it's amazing yeah. to have you on this show at the on, on the week that this general election is happening in the uk obviously we already know 
the implications by the time this has come out. So it's kind of and this could be this podcast right now. This could be being found right now in a post-apocalyptic <laughs> dystopia. And there's like a doom buggy that comes over a hill yeah, that yeah. used to be Westminster. <laughs> yeah. And amongst the rubble, somebody finds a disused iPhone. And, and while they, they want to be able to take the, all of the parts and coltan out to burn for fuel so they can survive <laughs> another night after the event, but they might be like, what was this? Ah, and they'll listen to it. I mean, I might be somewhat of an alarmist in terms of the, uh, the outcome <laughs> yeah, what, of this What do election. you think the result of the election is going to be? Well, I mean, I think, like Dane, I'm predicting a conservative majority victory. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that feels like a pretty sort of reasonable sort yeah. of timeline. Um, yeah, I mean, it's odd. We, we had this conversation the other day in the office when we were like, people are like, are, we stop, are you stockpiling for no-deal Brexit? And... And I got lots of weird looks, but, you know, obviously because I am on, yeah, the children of so many different uh, immigrants, I was just like, look, the only things you need to stockpile are currency mm. and a passport. And you've got to then have enough currency that when they take away your passport, you can bribe the border officials, right? Yeah, okay. Ultimately, yeah, everything else you stockpile, just someone else is going to take also, from Also, having pictures of former prime ministers with their penises in pig's mouths. That I can't can't, can't hurt. Yeah, if you got it, it's true. Yeah. So you know, if you like, if you're like the cleaner in uh, Oxbridge and you go past a Bullingdon club and they're getting up to something sordid, I'd have a camera phone handy. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it's the, the, there's a tweet by another political journalist and really starts to haunt me. This guy called Josh Lowe who works at it's 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 like some pun on the word political, and I, I not I realise I've never seen it said out loud. So I just I think it's maybe called like political dot a but something right. anyway and he tweeted when like the stuff about justin trudeau wearing blackface came up and he was just like every item of justin trudeau's life is just of like a really chill posh guy you met at a party and he was like you probably met justin trudeau last week at someone's 30th you know he was like i'm just doing some projects man uh, but i'm thinking of like working on my music yeah and he's like in 10 years time that guy could be leader of the opposition Fucking and hell. literally whenever i meet a useless posh person which seeing as i cover british politics is a lot yeah. i'm haunted by the are you just are you wow. i mean and this is the second you think about it like that you're like oh my god i i do meet that person wow. i probably i probably was annoyed by justin trudeau at a party yeah, yeah. two weeks ago i've been annoyed by many uh, justin trudeaus and i thought it says really bad that that's the nomenclature to describe uh impotent posh people that then go on to be members of the pop. but sorry justin you made your bed yeah mm. now you got a little now you got a line you made your face yeah you made your face now you got to look at it in the mirror <laughs> but yeah i mean you you do get a lot of time and people will describe Certain political figures uh, as charismatic, kind of like it's not they're not they're, they are trained in endearing themselves to you. They're not charismatic. Mm. It's just that they know they're not going to be like get away from me, peasant. But yeah, you meet these kind of people that appear real innocuous and they're kind of like you don't really stand yeah, out. But great yeah. cheek- cheekbones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Great cheekbones. I mean, he's probably been one of the better looking politicians and one of the more telegenic ones yeah. of re- since Obama, I'd say. Mm. And I think that's probably helped with a lot of his ascension. Yeah, power. yeah, and I think definitely, as you say, it's this kind of like, no, no, this is, you know, you've you've been taught to do this. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, you, your 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 father literally was the prime minister. You went to a really nice school. Therefore, yeah, you're quite good at this. And obviously, he also is, you know, a beautiful, beautiful man. And you look at him, and you're almost—he's almost so beautiful that you can get lost in his like weird, slightly sinister Kendall eyes and forget that he did also properly commit to the blackface, really black mm. hands as well. I mean, that really went in. Yeah, I mean, that is a level of sort yes. of. And anybody who paints it wasn't their, a last minute. And thing. anyone who yeah. paints their palms 
is not a nice person. No. Yeah. Uh, it's kind. Of, it's kind of like you know when like you somewhere like Finsbury Park or like in in a uh, Shoreditch, and uh, you get like feminist girls, and they're like, "Oh no, I'm not. I'm, I wear stonewashed jeans, and I have a Scandinavian rucksack. I really care about the environment, and sustainability." But it's like, isn't your boyfriend a banker or manager hedge fund? And they're like, "Yeah, yeah but feminism and stop exploiting women." It's like, doesn't he do that for fast profits though? Oh, but it's different with him, I guess. So, yeah, it's very similar. Um, it's probably time for a question. It is time for a question, as it always is. Uh, so, again, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, the way the podcast works, as usual, is that as our esteemed guest, we invite you to ask the first question, which we discuss, and then we'll have a question followed up uh, with the hisa here. Mm. Then I will close the show with the final question. The question can be any question you'd like. I feel like I'm teaching somebody how to suck eggs because you're a journalist. You know how questions work, Stephen. I apologise, but we need to go on through these formalities with everyone. Um, but... Please, you have the floor. You can ask us anything. Well, I guess in an odd way, my question kind of comes like, do 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 I as a journalist know anything about questions? And I, I was about to say I worried that this will seem dated in 2020. But that's actually a lie. I worry that everyone will be like, wow, really relevant podcast, man. Incredibly uh, <laughs> on the zeitgeist. Would be the uh, first time, Stephen. Yeah. Remember? Just like, what, what is the point of political journalism? Yeah, like... <sighs> Yeah, what, what what is the point of it? Well, I, ideally, <laughs> it's to objectively comment on the state of the political system in the country or you know, region that you're focusing on as a as a journalist. But it feels like, and I, 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 I will, you, we may as well talk mainly about the UK because America has a different, you know, similar game but different game. I it mean, just feels I mean, it's got differences. It's, it's got, got differences. it has got, got differences. differences. Yeah, yeah. But it feels like nobody's willing to accept anyone's opinion because everyone thinks you're biased. That's where we're at now, I think. Like so a political journalist to me would be the I dream for it would be completely not biased. I think people would kind of prefer that in many ways, but it's not possible, is it? Yeah, I mean so I guess I always feel like um I obviously have loads of biases as well as my own political preferences. I also have, you know, selfishly, you have a you have cognitive bias against being wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in 2015, when I yeah, I think I was I hear think some people who worked for him had, had said they could could win before him. But of course, by the end of it, you have a huge bias against. Well, if, if Jeremy Corbyn had lost, I would have felt pretty stupid, right? Yeah. And you also have a bias in favour of your existing sources, like one way or another. Uh, Elections mean you have to, you know, like you have to learn a whole new set of people's names, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that does bias journalists towards the status quo. I think one of the reasons why Jeremy Corbyn was treated the way he was initially, and is is this kind of thing where people are like, oh, but I know the Labour Party, and now there's a bunch of new people who are the Labour Party, and I have to get to know them as well, and that's not fair. But I think then the secret is not for us to try and go, I have no biases, but to go, okay, well these are my biases, and. Therefore, what do I think that might be prejudicing me? But I, so I think it's one to try and be objective, but it's also to kind of like try and hold power to account and try to explain to people the yeah. the context of. And even if, even if, right, then instead of reporting from like the wasteland in which we're like scrabbling over, like yeah, you know, like the the apes are like <laughs> kind of congregating around a, an iPhone to be like, oh, let's hear what the people before thought. <laughs> like stay, stay indoors. <laughs> yeah. Like even assuming that that uh, then we're wrong about the hellscape, I don't think them we anyone could pretend they thought that people in this election were being properly informed about the mm. political choice that is on offer yeah. at this election. Uh, 
Um, and I don't think anyone could say that that was the case uh, in Trump. And I think in most, yeah, this kind of sort of like this thing where people cover... Um, I was about to say they cover politics like it's football, but actually it's a lot easier to find intelligent coverage of football than it is to find it... Much <laughs> easier. Yeah. And it's such an interesting uh, comparison as well because I feel like I've always... Uh, probably recently as maybe the last two decades... Uh, I do wonder why, you know, the political landscape isn't given, I guess, the same level of uh, coverage uh, as something like football. I think if that approach was used so far as, like, I think if you chance most of the laity and said to them, like, if you break down your favourite England squad, or if you could put down put together your top 11, mm. your starting 11, three subs, I think most people, with their knowledge of football, would be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. I think if you was asked people to do the same with 11 members of an effective uh, or potent cabinet, mm. they wouldn't be able to do that. But maybe that's where the coverage, maybe we need to get people like Stephen kind of with a Gary Neville style board going like, look, at, look we've got to move, you know, they've got to move those, their formation. Those equivalents do exist, but it's like, you know, those Only are... Only on election they're, they're very much, they're very much, uh, yeah, during election time or they're resigned to like, you know, the, the channels on your television, mm. which are like, you know, your CNNs and like your MSBC, MSNBCs. And, and I just think there's... There's been a certain level of sensationalism of political journalism of more recent times, but not in a very positive way, where it's accessible to like the laity. And uh, so, yeah, I think the uh, the football thing is a really good comparison. I think, the, yeah, and I agree with you that there is a certain level of, uh, and both of you in terms of a certain level of mm. objectivity that is involved. I think in that's what people coverage. ideally feel like they deserve. Yeah, or disseminating, the, disseminating information, uh, which may normally be hard to understand because of political jargon or, you know, how its application would work practically for everyone's individual sectors. And this is where, uh, I guess, the journalists would come in. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I think when you look at what is going on with the BBC, which I don't know if they ever ask you on, if you do much of uh, a pop over to there to say hello to them, but yeah. that is where we're... They're legally obliged to be uh, objective, right? Yeah. Which, I mean, Laura Kernsberg aside, you can take any of them, it's impossible, right? It's, it genuinely is impossible to truly be objective, right? Because you, they know whatever they know about Corbyn, Boris, whoever, and that will influence their opinion. Yeah, I think this is the thing. So I think that I think one of the well, I think I think the BBC has a problem, and I think it often confuses um, striving for objectivity with being fair. Mm. Um, and there are so many kind of tweets and broadcasts of the kind of like. The accusation yeah. of the bias towards yeah. the lefty kind of thing and the socialist bias of the BBC. Yeah. But then isn't that but then you think about it as an institution, it's a tax funded that has to represent the needs of everyone, which is how socialism works. So it's almost quite weird that people would think that the mechanisms which govern or the the arguable business model is socialist in its nature in itself. So why it would have a left bias? I don't really understand why people are confused by that. If you wanted it to be more right, then you'd have to... Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is, is it a great socialist achievement, right? Yeah. Then actually, for all uh, its, its faults, um, it is still in this age when in most of the world people get their news in most countries now from this incredible... It is a place where we can all broadly come together, yeah. where, you know, you have a huge range of sort of cultural output because it is funded by... Uh, collective, yeah, yeah. yeah it's uh, it is uh, it is practical socialism in action. I think one of the problems is I sometimes I was, I was speaking to someone the other day, uh, fairly high up the top of uh, uh, 
of the Labour Party, and they were talking about the BBC, and the word they used that really struck me was not biased but casual. They just felt, they said, I just feel like the BBC, thanks essentially to socialism, exists in this huge hegemonic position in the British media. And he said, and I just feel like the people on top really don't seem to understand that the decisions they make have, you know, kind of huge... Yeah, but massive ramifications. Which is such a good point, Stephen, because, uh, I mean, working with the BBC from the more of a creative side, I've I've seen this myself firsthand, and, you know, you could argue, so far as Labour being, I guess, the closest guys of a socialist interest party, suffer from the same thing, where I think some of the top brass at the Labour Party enjoyed a certain level of success and, uh, you know, were very blasé about certain aspects of deregulation and about, like, you know, certain decisions they make, uh, you know, in terms of, like, the whole Blairite Labour kind of mm. thing. And I think that, uh, that obliviousness uh, has very much given way to what we're now seeing being this, uh, uh, I guess, this, this caucus of centrists or centre-right people and, uh, and a massive glut of disenfranchised uh, working-class people. Who, and, and basically, they left this vacuum where... I guess I guess Labour went from you know being the working class to becoming the upper working class to being you know mm. essentially like the party that represents like the London the home counties and mm. you know that surrounding mm. area and this left an enormous glut of disenfranchised uh, proletariat, which uh, was a vacuum that you know your UKIPs have been able to fill. So a Farage basically, yeah, Farage, yeah. yeah. So. But the the thing to me about be a political journalism, which I, I'm a big fan of. Like it's part of the reason, you know, not the only reason you're here today. Is that, you know, I like listening to your voice. And I, I listen to some of your rivals and, you know, I just listen to, I listen to a lot of it in America. You know, the, the political journalism is amazing and in, informs you. It can sway you so effectively. You know, just listening to someone who's compellingly saying something can sway you so much. I'm, I'm a moderately intelligent guy, so I think, you know, I would be able to spot the bullshit. But it still sways you nonetheless. It might be helpful for you guys to have kind of... Um, like little tags that you do at the top of all of your stuff, or like you wear like little sandwich boards when you're on television that kind of like T-shirts that just like outline your credentials. So no, nobody can argue so that, you know, I don't know who you vote for or, you know, who, but, you know, you could be like, before you hear me say my thing, just, you know, these are the four things you probably would want to know about me before I say this. Maybe that would be a useful or, thing. Or I guess I would argue the responsibility would be for people to maintain a certain political aptitude because I think what came with this attachment from like the Labour Party also came with a certain level of political complacency from people who were maybe centre or left. Uh, because um, it was like Brexit, for example, for me, for a large part of it, again, and you could argue that a lot of Brexit has been fueled by xenophobia in, in very many ways. But I feel like the real issue is from the fact that some people kind of had this idea where like, well, of course you're going to have Brexit. I mean, of course we're going to stay in the EU. Why wouldn't we? I don't need to vote. Because it seems axiomatic that you'd want to be a member of the EU because of all the benefits. Not realising that, you know, within this caucus of Labour voters, there is an enormous, uh, you know, demographic who are being completely underserved by this party. And this is culminated in, like, you know, those kind of schism amongst uh, the working class or who would argue be the historic left and and the right as well. And... uh, yeah, I just feel like, you know, if we were to just kind of maintain a certain level of political awareness and then that would in turn be validated by political journalism, mm. I think that's the issue here. So I, I feel like journalists, is, it's still very relevant. There's still some stuff that people need to know. Um, How do you feel people treat you at the moment as a 
political journalist. Um, since since the phrase fake news was introduced into everyday <laughs> vocabulary, um, so uh, so I mean, I have this incredibly privileged um, position in the. Uh, my readers are new states and readers are incredibly engaged um you know people who want to build a better society and tend to be quite thoughtful and so even when they disagree with us a very small minority of them do so in a kind of overtly hostile way mm. and although the slightly frustrating thing is because we're small you sometimes have a sense where it's like there's a really important thing i just wish i could get more people to be aware of and you can't but the joy of it is you have a very nice uh, sort of fair-minded readership. So I I don't feel that exposed to the hostility of the kind of your fake news, you do terrible stuff. The freedom is because, you know, on our podcast and our magazine, we can, you know, we can kind of ramble on a bit, is I think one of the reasons why we have that trust is um, I often will start by a disclaimer, not by going, oh, who I vote for, but, oh, you know, look, I have a really strong bias in favour of certain issues. So in the final TV debate in the British general election, there was a question about, you know, which should come first, human rights or, you know, keeping people safe. And basically any politician who had said that they thought human rights came first, they could have set the podium on fire, accidentally weed on themselves in a bid to get the fire out, and I'd still have gone, oh, yeah, they, they won the debate. So I, so when Corbyn did the answer to that, in our live blog, I went, look, guys, I am so biased towards this side of the mm. argument mm. that my view is Jeremy Corbyn won this debate. I said, I have no... And I, and I said, honestly, you, you could show me evidence that he had answered that question really badly and I would have to accept it, but I would not believe it in my heart. And I was like, yeah. so I was like, with that massive caveat, mm-hmm. I think Jeremy Corbyn won this debate. And I got so many nice messages from our readers who were just going, you know, including ones who were, you know, so most of our readers vote Labour or Liberal Democrat or Green and mm-hmm. some of them vote S&P, but some of them do vote Tory. And even some of the Conservatives were like, I just thought it was really nice and you just went, I really care about civil liberties and therefore any politician who, who talks my language on mm. civil liberties, I am going to go, oh, ten points. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's refreshing. Yeah. It's refreshing for someone just to be open and honest about where they stand on stuff because at times it just feels like they're trying to avoid that exact thing, which doesn't make us buy you guys. Yeah, I think, and I think... That's the problem. And I think this is the... Yeah, and this is the thing, I think, in public service broadcasting where they have this kind of duty to be impartial... People know they're being sold a fake because, yeah, everyone, everyone has. And, you know, for some people, it's civil liberties. You know, for other people, it's, you know, um, I keep thinking about things which I actually also believe. But, yeah, so, yeah, for some people, it's, you know, so another thing for me is, you know, climate change and airport expansion. Absolutely. Um, Everyone's climate change is the third biggest issue now or maybe second. Yeah. And I just think that everyone kind of knows, even if they don't agree with those people, Mm. then everyone has got certain issues which are so important to them. For lots of people in this country, of course, it's Brexit one way or the other. Yeah. They are willing to put everything else aside for whether or not Brexit happened or did not happen, and whichever one of those events has led to the, you know, the, yeah, the, the monkeys uh, <laughs> pouring over this recording uh, <laughs> to find out what we did. Yeah, I mean, it's a great, well, great question to kick us off. Yeah, um, yeah really good question. I love that. Um, but we, we value your, uh, we value your work. <laughs> so, <laughs> so well, means absolutely, in a roundabout way. Um, uh, yeah, I've, I've got a different question, but still in the political sphere uh, because you know. It's nice, isn't it, politics? Mm. We don't always have people on here who are that deep into it. We have a fair few people. We've had Gary Young. 
Yeah, we had, we George Monbiot. John Monbiot. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. so we've had a few. Um, uh, and uh, Jonathan Pye as well. Yep, Jonathan Pye. Yeah, it was very kinsy. exciting to be on the same podcast as, Such as a... Gary Young. I remember Gary Young came on our podcast once, and Gary Young just like, you know, when I first started like reading The Guardian after like 9 11, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, Gary Young just like. Yeah, he's a guy, man. Guy, yeah, like, yeah, he's yeah, just, for sure. Yeah. It was, it was like being in the presence of like a. A force. It's like a yeah. Barry White of social political journalism. <laughs> yeah, like it's very really soothing tones, but yeah. at the same time very hard hitting. My question is going to be: I'm going to put my neck out. Okay, I'm going to put my neck out and say when this podcast is published, Jeremy Corbyn will not be our prime minister. I'm going to put my neck out and say that. So how? Can I just? Do, you would say that, wouldn't you? Hey? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Very good. That was a good yeah. podcast while it lasted. Might a surname Cohen relevant? <laughs> uh, um, no, but I, I'm going to predict, and obviously there'll probably be an amendment at the beginning of this podcast now if I've got that wrong. Yeah. But I'm going to predict he will not be, and I can go into many reasons why. But 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 in the face of, and I'm just going to be. In the face of Boris fucking Johnson being your opposition, how did Corbyn mess things up so badly? And I think that's... I'm, I'm saying, Or did he not? Because I think for a lot of people, it felt like what the Tories have become should be something that can be easily beaten. And I'm saying that as someone who is not hugely allegiance to any particular, uh, particular political party. Well, I think... And, you know, with the massive disclaimer that, uh, you know, obviously... I mean, either the, either the monkeys will be nodding and going, yes, yes, this is how the dark times came, or uh, the humans will be going, wow, these people knew nothing about anything. But yeah, I mean, so that's my sort of underlying assumption too. And I think, you know, the tragedy of this moment for the country and for the Labour Party is Jeremy Corbyn inherited in 2015 a defeat which was so bad yeah. that it, it was it was impossible basically to see how Labour could come back yeah. within one parliament. He then in 2017 created a situation where Labour needed just the tiniest of, you know, really transformed the political position and then for a couple of reasons um, I think failed to capitalise. I think the biggest one was you know, Jeremy Corbyn's personal instinct for a variety of reasons was that the referendum result should stand and be honoured and to support a very soft Brexit to try and keep the country together. And I think in the election we've had, there are lots of reasons why Boris Johnson has managed to kind of sail through with his promises and just do not add up and cannot be reconciled with each other. But one of them is, I think, that you can see the space where if Jeremy Corbyn had been able to... um, uh, holds to having a softer Brexit position, the Brexit offer would be scrutinised as opposed to having a selection in which the only choice is if you want Brexit, you basically, the Conservatives are your natural home. Yeah. Uh, the thing which is emotionally important to me, uh, you know, as someone who, you know, uh, you know, so although my family name, uh, Bush, is from Shepherd's Bush, that was because during World War II we changed it from Shemansky because my great-grandfather thought that Hitler would cross the channel and we'd need to change. Although hmm. the thing which has been emotionally painful for me at this election has been Labour's failure to deal with anti-Semitism, I would love to believe and I thought that that was the thing that the majority of voters were aligned with me on. I just don't think that they are. Uh, so although I wish... Why? Tack- Why uh, don't you think they are? I mean, you talking about people on the left who aren't aligned oh, with no, you because on the right it doesn't even matter. So I think, I think... Well, I think actually in an way right the reason why anti-semitism in the Labour party is an electoral problem is i think it is something that people on the left do care about hmm. and for lots of them they, but they don't really believe it do they I, i've got the sense from a lot of people that a lot of people think it's kind of 
a kind of a bit of propaganda by the right to smudge the I, left. I think, I think from as in uh, having uh, Jeremy Corbyn as uh, him being scapegoated for being the mouthpiece for any anti-Semitic rhetoric. I don't think most people believe that. I think what people are more concerned with is this lack of. Uh, uh, his his uh, lack of, I suppose, um, reprimanding of leadership he, yeah. and leadership in terms of like, or and even just overtly out there being saying, of, "I am not an anti semite by any stretch of the imagination." May, may, and I feel like his whole thing. May I, while I may have some misgivings about Zionism, mm. I myself have nothing against. Uh, you know, I'm not an anti semite, and anyone who is will be ejected from my party. Yeah, and that, and I think that's. That probably, a statement like that probably would have made a big difference. But do you feel yeah, that the, 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 the lack of... Because the lack of leadership is, is kind of the thing that, that's been cited as the reason that he hasn't managed to turn 2017 potentially into this 2019 victory. Do you agree with that? Or that's um, kind of what you hear I a think, lot. I, I, think so. I, I agree. I think it's a large part of a lack but of But then leadership. what is that leadership? <laughs> what does well, that mean? So this right? is the thing. Is that exactly because, as, as, as uh, Stephen correctly pointed out, is that like you, he, you know, he took the reins of a party that has been off course for a very, very long time. And... But Blair in one way, it was back that. on course in 2017. So then, mm. so then, what did he not do to move it on? Well, do you I think th- they, is, it, is that after he got on a ballot? To he be got. He managed. He, he managed to. It, one of the. It was a real shocking. I remember the moment the the the, um, the poll came out and it was like, this, this isn't going to be a Tory was, victory. Was, Corbyn's did a, did a gig at yeah. Kentish t- at the forum in Kentish Town when he yeah. when he got on the ballot at that time. Now, I I personally feel like he uh, while he put it back on course, maybe ideologically initially. I feel like there are a lot of dissidents that were in the party. But it was just the numbers. Kind of it was just the, the, the pure numbers that he'd managed to take to beat, to stop Theresa May getting her majority yeah. was so incredible in 2007. It was such a shock. Yeah. That then in those two years since, he's definitely not capitalised on whatever he had. I think, so I think in 2017, I think there were a lot of things which applied applied then, which have, have, have fallen away a bit. One was, is that in 2017, it wasn't just... Um, than a lot of the policies were very good. They were announced in a way where they kind of told you this sort of big story yeah. that you could almost, without looking at it, you could guess um, if you went, oh, well, what's Labour's policy on, you know, cruelty to circus animals? You could mm-hmm. broadly go, oh, well, it, it will be this yeah. and it will be funded by and this way. And everything kind of had the same theme. Yeah. And in this election... Uh, they kind of took that 2017 result as a kind of well. One, it meant that yeah, he took complete control of the party. He yeah, there were, there were no longer any opponents of his with any levers of internal power. Um, but they took that as a kind of okay. Well, we can be more radical. And I don't think that the problem was that they became more radical. It was that the um, so let's take an area of Labour policy that is really is really well thought through absolutely could have been delivered and would hugely change uh, the world for the better, which is their plan to plant at least 50 million trees in the next uh, 25 years. And lots of people went, oh, well, this is implausible. Actually, the individual numbers year on year are really plausible, Mm -hmm. really doable. But that and all of their other policies became about the policies of here's a big number Mm. rather than the thing they did really well in 2017 you know free school meals uh extra it's kind of like here is a tangible thing that you know maybe not for you you and you can understand it and i think that you know one of the really important qualities in a political 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Leader is the ability to um, explain to the electorate why they're doing. Now, that can be used mm. in a negative way. David Cameron going, there's been a financial crisis, so we need to sure. un- yeah, so we need to cut the state to pieces. Not quite not how I would like it to be used. Boris Johnson, of course, doesn't do that. He basically goes like, don't worry, we'll give you everything you want, but we'll give that group everything you want. Trumpism? Yeah, and then he just hopes, and by the end of it, then people just forget. And then he just ruffles his own hair and does something stupid, hoping (laughs) that you'll forget. Yeah. But, I mean, it's kind of fascinating listening to you talk, because obviously, you know, this is your job to kind of study all this stuff, and not not my job. uh, (laughs) It is is interesting, And, and you look at what Corbyn, some of the things that have come out, as their policies, as they built up for this election, and some of them you, you you love the sound of, but you know, you know that we just don't have a system capable. The four day week thing, the way it was pitched, was so flat. You know, uh, kind of like it felt so flimsy in terms of what he, the fundamentals. If you actually, you know, you read the the, the, the materials they put out on it. You're like, I, I can pick holes in this, and I'm a fucking TV producer. <laughs> but I, but the thing is, for me, and I'll, I'll allude to this in my question, but I don't think that's... I feel like that should be... That's indicative of a party that's prepared to engage with people, is that if there's a policy which you can understand and then dissect yourself because you don't think it's good enough... But you, I could start a political party and say free ice cream every Friday, but it ain't going to happen because you can't do free ice cream every well, Friday because I mean, you, you can't you, afford you it. You say this, but <laughs> I feel like we are now in a political era where there are people now in power who have made such... Insane promises. Sure, but that's because we're. But that's, that's, that, the problem therefore comes that the people on the right have been lying, and we've been watching them lie their ass off with buses and any other thing. To see the people on the left do it, it fucking sucks in my opinion. That's why I'm like, but you I, have- I can tell you right now, I didn't vote for Jeremy Corbyn in this election that's just happened because I thought, other than you know, it, it, he's definitely made it tough for Jews to vote for him. But just just the stuff that you're coming out with is just like, I know you're not going to deliver. Well, I think so. I think. So I think essentially, right, one, one of the problems is that left voters are, in my view, rightly more picky, right? So, the, so we as a magazine opted not to endorse anyone because mm-hmm. we, you know, have covered and opposed austerity since the beginning and we know, therefore, the Conservatives are unfit for power. Um, we align politically with a lot of the stuff Labour have said they'll do, but we think his failure to tackle anti-Semitism means that he can't be yeah. positively endorsed. Yeah. And most of our readers were broadly understanding of that, and some of them would go, OK, but, you know, but the, only, the only reliable way to stop Boris Johnson is to vote for him. And it's just like, OK, I understand that. It's emotionally very difficult. Yeah, I, I completely get it. However, I personally cannot say... Um, 
that I am able to vote for someone who has failed to kick these people out, who has mm. done these things, who has made it impossible for people in my community to feel that they can vote for, for this party. Um, and I just, well, not I just think, we've got a pretty good demonstration on the other side of politics than, than a right-wing, mag- right-wing magazines, including ones which had been very critical of Boris Johnson, mm. did not hesitate to line up behind him. Now, I go back and forth, and, you know, one of the slightly weird things about listening to this back is I imagine that there will be times on election night and in the days afterwards that I feel I wish I could be someone who'd go, well, putting that aside... This is about a red team and a blue team, and we just have to destroy the blue team. Because mm-hmm. when I said I don't think, yeah, I think in terms of like the voters which count double are the people who could vote Labour or Conservative and have voted Conservative. Mm. I think the anti Semitism has primarily ha- hurt, hurt Labour among people who have opted to vote Green or Liberal Democrat yeah, or not yeah. to vote. Mm. Um, because left wing voters, I think, rightly have more principles. And one of the problems yeah. is that the, the, the joy of Corbynism is it freed them from that awful rut they'd got into in 2001, 2005, oh, de- 2010, of going, right and also of. going, if you don't vote for us, well, then you just want the Tories to win. And it's yeah. just like, or maybe I have some principles that I would like you to address. Uh, and they've somehow, you know, literally less than two years after that glorious moment when they took away the Tory majority, have got back to that arid zone of, I see you have principled objections to us. Is that because you're secretly a Tory? And it's like, <laughs> literally, I thought the point was to break them out of that. Yeah. So I actually think, though, on the four-day week thing, right, it's not written in stone than, um, than, the, than the week we only have a two-day weekend and we have five days of work. But I think... The mistake they made with it is they moved from having quite a sensible, tangible policy of we'll have a couple more bank holidays, we'll have a day for veterans, we'll have a day for this, where you gradually move that to going, we will work towards having a four-day week, which in of itself isn't Mm. actually, yeah, it's not even we will necessarily have a four-day week, but... It's one of those odd things where it's like, but okay, but you're not going to have a four-day week in 2024 at the end of the first parliament. Mm. You can take people on a journey in terms of what you can do, right? It's the way it was pitched. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, I pitch TV shows every day. And, you know, if if I'm pitching shows that just can't be made, if I'm saying, you know, no disrespect to the lovely people at Channel 4, but if I was saying, guess what? I've got a new show for you. The Rock is going to host it every Friday night, live from Wembley Stadium. It's not the Rock's not up for that. And, and, and so, it would Saint be a great Howard, show, but that kind of—that's the kind of talk that's not going to get you into Space Force. <laughs> <laughs> Remember them? Yeah, yeah. Remember Space Force? Was that the thing where they told people they were going to be astronauts and then they weren't really astronauts, or was that another? Was, was, I think it was Mike Pence came up with this whole thing. Space oh, Force. Oh no, you're talking were. about yeah, yeah. He's talking about the TV show on Channel Four that where they tricked people that they'd gone into space. Oh, but you were talking about you were talking about, <laughs> about actual space oh, force. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh right, yeah, oh. Remember, actually, remember that? Yeah, Pence yes, Trump, because so. I am definitely I am aware of what goes on in the politics. But I mean, let's say <laughs> politics is a strong for strong our list. listeners. Is that, don't so I think know I believe Mike is. Pence. I think in, in terms of anticipation of. Uh, I think a new kind of space race with China, uh, and this was happening amidst the trading war. Uh, Donald Trump had suggested that they would fund a uh, space force, which would, uh, I guess, uh, replace or usurp NASA as America's uh, space exploration and intergalactic combat uh, forces. Cool, very normal behaviour from yeah, yeah. from you know that guy yeah. from someone who's aspiring to be Cobra Commander. Yeah, it's one <laughs> it's one of those weird things where you just because obviously uh, it's been at this point you know three years and. The human race is still there. It's only when you kind of, and I do occasionally have this thing where I kind of just you suddenly remember. Oh, actually, like just because the the problem of like having someone you know like 
visibly disintegrating in front of us in that job hasn't the nightmare hasn't happened doesn't mean it's not yeah it couldn't still happen yeah. and i think we've kind of got into this weird zone with trump which obviously seeing as our listeners may be listening to this you know from the thunderdome may seem bitterly <laughs> funny to them where it's kind of like oh well you know obviously we've had so many international crises where he's almost caused something terrible to happen mm. it'll definitely be fine if he's still in that job for you know or how it's, many it's more people months. that try and rationalize his behavior yeah. with some psychological model and people are like what do you got to understand is that Trump's a bully. He punches people in the face first and asks questions afterwards. Yeah. yeah. That's not okay. I don't know what's wrong with people. That, that yeah. is not an okay disposition to have when you are in control of the largest nuclear arsenal on the planet, arguably. It's but, probably not an okay thing to do. But just to, to wrap up this question with one further inner question, is, is that if I am correct and Jeremy Corbyn is, no longer pri- is not the Prime Minister and therefore probably won't ever be the Prime Minister because mm. I would say the Labour will not stick with him potentially what is the future hold for Labour? So I think Labour will hold to something broadly like Corbynism on the economics uh, and it will I think basically that despite everything I've just said about how as much as I would love to believe and I thought that the country's doubts about it were the same as mine I think broadly Labour will seek to recreate the magic of 2017. Mm. Its next leader will, whether sincerely or insincerely, have essentially run on the I'm the one who can get us back to something with that unifying appeal. Um, Is there anyone out there you spot who you think might... Um, might, might be able to have a build on this? Or? I mean, believe in you, Stephen, you've done this before. So, um, so uh, we see where I've led this. <laughs> so I, I honestly don't know who, who, uh, yeah, who it will be. I think actually, um, I think one of the, yeah, the slightly weird benefit is I actually think um, in the 2015 leadership election where Corbyn won was a, uh, a race fought in despair because they'd had an unexpected defeat mm. and they had three candidates other than Jeremy Corbyn who were not very strong. I actually think this time, um, whether it is... So one of Becky Long-Bailey or Angela Rayner will have run. They're like Bezzy mates, so they won't won't run if... They won't have ran against each other, unless it turns out that, like, the story of 2020 will have been, like, the most hilarious interpersonal beef. But, yeah, that that almost certainly won't happen unless... I mean, they literally are flatmates. They're both MPs for outside of London, so when they are in London, you know, they have a a shared flat. Uh, So, yeah, it will will be... Yeah, they'll have been massive I pay for, so you ladies make sure you play nice and get it together and make good things happen. Yeah, or it will be Emily Thornberry or Keir Starmer but I think it will be one of those four and I think Mm. all of them in very different ways will be able to carry forward uh, many of the positive aspects of of this moment but also um, I think you know it's really easy to forget that like people really don't like Boris Johnson Yes, Uh, and I think that um, in in many full ways, full of utter shit. Yeah, and I think um, in quite. In Excuse me, guys. There's some escorts that <laughs> actually uh, don't mind his uh, business. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but I just think that. Uh, I think actually particularly despite the fact they have slightly different politics I think Becky Long-Bailey and Keir Starmer in very different ways because they're both kind of sort of quite not flashy. Mm. I can quite see how they could do this sort of um, yeah this kind of Double look. Act. I'm honest. Mm. I'm serious. We've had five years of this guy joking around, tumbling over everyone. Mm-hmm. I am not a tumbler. I'm a serious person. Mm. And I think that that sense of seriousness, because I think one of the things Corbynism has lost between 2007 and 2019 is its sense of seriousness. It hasn't been serious about mm. kicking these people out. It hasn't been serious about explaining its policies. And it hasn't yeah. been serious about holding to its strategic principles on, on, on Brexit. 
Um, and I think that, that all of them will have the will have that appeal. But my, my expectation is that the Labour Party uh, in 2020 will broadly have the same economic position as the Labour Party we have yeah. now. What a, what a very good answer. A great answer. And it's been so informative for me. That's why I'm not saying much. It's, um, it's, yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated. And also, a lot of, we're making a lot of predictions here based on this election. Can't you, imagine if we get this wrong. Imagine I mean, this imagine, podcast, we're that might be good. But imagine if, <laughs> imagine if you get blamed for jinxing it, Howard. Yeah. Well, That's just going to add to the narrative I of certain members of the political part the of, only, of Labour. The only scenario, listeners, that I can see happening that isn't a Tory majority is a hung parliament, which kind of means nothing in the terms of what I've said against Jeremy Corbyn because he still didn't win. I mean, uh, well, thanks for answering, you know. We, we appreciate it. Yeah, and, and, and so Dane's going to wrap up the show with his his question uh, and then we're going to hit the road. Is, uh, which I guess is in the same vein, but I, I, I guess I consider myself to an extent somewhat of an apolitical person in that I, uh, I'm obviously aware of them. I don't try to have any particular allegiance to any bipartisan political structure. Um, I say that to say this. I believe that we've reached the apex of the eff- effectiveness of bipartisan politics. I think it doesn't work anymore. I think the Tories, even though they appear in the, probably the strongest or almost caricatured guys of themselves, are working in a way which is just beyond being practical. And I say to a lot of people, and I tweet this very often, even if you are a conservative, hetero, cisgender, white, male, industrialist, capitalist, if Boris Johnson is the best of you, there's a problem. And by the same token... Labour is arguably unrecognisable now, has a massive schism between a lot of haves, people who feel that like doesn't serve their needs, the underserved, and they're just massively fragmented. And Jeremy Corbyn is like, to me, it's, like, it's Obi-Wan Kenobi, but it's like if he was born, you know, just after, you know, uh, Order 66 was executed by Senator Pol Potin for the Star Wars fans. So my question is, I guess, is that if you're able to suspend uh, your political intellect and were to describe a utopia, a political utopia, so far as like the ideal party manifesto or the structure, based on today's social ills, what would that consist of? Um, big, so, big question. Yeah, wow, that is a yeah. Um, and anyone tuning in is going like, wow, Richard Iardi's got up himself. But, um, <laughs> but I guess, kind of, you know, for, for me, sort of. The ideal kind of political movement, and I agree that, uh, yeah, ultimately, right, a, one, a political situation in which you end up with two leaders who are deeply unpopular, and you end up with a situation where this is the, you know, this, this, Boris Johnson is the Tory party going, okay, we don't care about anything else, we just want to win. This yeah. is literally them pressing the emergency button. Like, like the GOP, if you press the like, emergency button and, yeah, the emer- yeah. and the thing which comes is Boris Johnson, right, that is, that is not a good sign. You need, you need a new button. Yeah. And, and, you know, and ultimately we have a system based around the idea that you have two parties and that reflects the whole of people's choice and then this creates clear uh, outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, even, and if we get a clear outcome, it will be because the Tories are so far ahead mm-hmm. that that overcomes the fact that our political system increasingly doesn't create them. So I think, you know, um, for me at least, you know, the, the central thing that, our, that a new political, you know, this utopia would do is there would be a lot more green space. We really, you know, like... 
it's, it's one of those things where it's so easy to get hooked on like new technologies. And so it seems like crazy to say, look, we really, really do just need to plant millions upon millions of trees. They are natural carbon sinks. They cool down urban centres. Not only is that, I mean, and I don't mean this in like a indentured servitude way, but if you were to teach a certain level of ecological responsibility to maybe people that are unaware, like people maybe doing community service in prison or the incarcerated, and let them feel that they are actively being involved in creating a new infrastructure, that could work. I also think that for municipal, municipal buildings as they exist, there is no reason why every single school, every government building, every library, uh, you know, at Al should all have solar panels. Yeah. Because that saves for your, your, your budget itself. Yeah. You know, those are overheads in terms of like providing power and utilities for government buildings or institutions or for public funded institutions which are available for the public, for them to be able to observe sustainable power and renewable energy just makes sense economically, I would think. And yeah. I think your point, you know, to, to Dane's question is, is, is in some ways it felt like I kind of thought it was going to be the only answer <laughs> there is to give because what's so noticeable, and that's why it kind of gives me a bit of hope, actually, this, this point, is that, it's, it's, it's that everyone's so on one side or the other with most issues, but this seems to be one that could unite. Yeah, I genuinely I, yeah. believe the fact that your planet is going to die and that means that there will be no more football for you to watch because there won't be a planet <laughs> for you to watch it on as just one example is is potentially enough to start getting people on uh, one side and i know there's there, there's the extreme <laughs> in in america i think less so in this country no but i i, I feel i think in, in this country as well i i, I it's not the same with, here. No, I agree with to an extent but i think i think this that policy and ecological responsibility would bring back those who have veered away from the left because of like you know being underserved or mm. moving to be called centrist and people who's based like in the south and stuff. I think that would definitely bring them back. I, I agree with you. I, I think there are obviously some people that are so rigidly, uh, I guess, uh, inculcated by ideas of like capitalist gain, they can't understand it and they're like they'll find a way to sort it out. And those people, I mean, there's a word for people like that. I don't know what it is, but you know, but yeah. it's, it's once yeah. the impact becomes clearer. And I think we, well, we have, don't want to get to that point. Is, but sure, I, but I think I, that's just what's going to drive it. I think Harley. weirdly, one of the things I do feel optimistic about is I think actually we fortunately have already reached a tipping point in terms of weather. Yeah, yeah I mean, like you know, like you know, yeah, like so. You know, my partner, she's white. She used to, when we first got together, she had freckles from like <laughs> March. August. <laughs> now she literally looked in the mirror the other day and went, oh, my freckles have gone at last because we've stopped having unseasonably terrifying weather. And obviously, you know, we're both really green and, yeah, like really into, you know, our recycling and our reusing. But um, she went, we've really, yeah, we've just got to fix this as a problem. And I think everything, as you say, flows from, and I think in this country, we're lucky in that there's a consensus, there's a problem. There is sadly not a consensus yet on the need to, you know, so basically, yeah, so I mean, yeah, but if you even look in this country, right, where Friends of the Earth scored the recent manifestos, Labour came top with 33 points. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the Lib Dems or Green came second with 32 points. Then the other one came third with 31 points. Hmm. And the Conservatives came fourth with seven points yeah, oh. out of this metric. And yeah. I think the available mark was, was, was 40 or something. Interesting. I'd love to see that yeah. study and, and what it's based on. And I just think... Um, so I'm, I'm optimistic. And also people understand that broadly the only way that we as a species are going to survive is to consume less, reuse more, 
you know, take more care in how we treat the planet uh, and in generally just be better custodians of, um, of our, our yeah, natural exactly. habitat. And I, I, I did, the, to me, again, like, I'd be interested to see what you think of this because, you know, maybe this doesn't enter the sphere, the sphere of conversation that you do on a daily basis, but, like, there's something about it all that's inherently human underneath the actual political agenda of saying let's try and save the planet because it's going to die and we're all going to die because of that it's something like about you know like we just mentioned technology before you know and 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 how you know it, it doesn't generate a kind of community spirit it can create communities but it doesn't create community spirit like for example i don't know where you live but if all of you you and your neighbors were planting trees uh, or doing the green bit for your community, it would bring you all together in a beautiful way. You know, I also think about, I've been watching the Attenborough's new thing, and, um, you know, you see these endangered species on that, and I was thinking about, God, if that animal lived in, like, you know, uh, I live in Hertfordshire, if that animal lived in Hertfordshire and it was dying, all those people in Hertfordshire would be like, we need to sort this out, like, we're killing that animal over there. People's love of animals... That is above anything in some oh. ways. Like, and if you can get that into people's brains as part of this conversation, yeah. oh yeah, I mean, people love that. I mean, one of the things I always find slightly wild about like British people is, um, I remember like in my teens, one of my best friends was an inpatient in uh, in UCA UCH for a while, mm-hmm. and there was an advert on these like weird screens they had to watch. People. It was just like this man walks fifteen miles every day just to get water, which he carries on the back of the donkey. Goes on and on about this man and his walk, and then the final thing is who's going to take care of the donkey? And it's just like. Whose takeaway from that? Was, I, what's going to happen to the dude? Who, the, old, the, old, yeah, like, the old donkey sanctuary. Yeah, you know what's even crazier, Stephen? We don't know if that donkey ever existed. That could have been an actor donkey. You don't know. This is the whole thing about when you think about any kind of... Con- Clive as the donkey, everyone. This is what I mean. It could happen. Because remember, that donkey would have to do a few takes as they do the tight and wide shots of that angle of that walk yeah, back yeah. from the well. I'm just saying that like the whole idea about conservation as it exists is somewhat of a faith system. Mm. Because you'll pay for animals in uh, who don't live with you that you never get to meet. Sure. And people, but, I'm, but I'm saying people happily do this mm. as zoophiles. However, yeah. for you to talk about them paying, whether it's either financial aid to other countries or developing countries or talking about, you know, taking care of the proletariat or the poor, then people are like, well, they, they, they've done nothing for me. And, and blah, blah, blah. Mm. But if you say someone threw a firework oh, yeah. at this cat, ah! But yeah, I genuinely think a pet NHS would be easier to defend politically <laughs> than the actual NHS. <laughs> that was on the Labour manifesto, a pet NHS. Fucking hell. Big cash money. Yeah. They but should that, be like, look, this is just going to be NHS for your pets. And then it, and then the scandal would be that some of that money was being laundered to take care of human beings. Mm. And obviously... Then just imagine those waiting rooms. Fucking hell. Where is this weird Three waiting? hours waiting of cats screaming. I'm not sure I can handle it. Well, it's like Animal Hospital. They, they, they call yeah, it Yeah, but down. you get seen pretty quick. Do you? Know, you get seen, when, I, when I take... When my cat... Accidentally poisoned itself. We got her scene pretty quick. Well, there you go. So, what's that fine? How? She got into her cupboard and, and even though she eats barely anything that isn't her fucking food, she started eating rat poison for fun. And I was like, Prim, you've just fucked everything. Like, that's whole Christmas that year, 2017. Fucked. Whole, really? Christmas. Well, I mean, suicide attempts get to be very <laughs> high. How dare you, Dave? You see? How dare you suggest it's, that my cat is trying to kill It's itself. your feline-based cognitive dissonance. This was causing this problem, Howard. If my she wife might need, listens to this, she might need help. Be very frustrated. Tara, I'm just saying, okay? I'm not saying you're at fault, okay? That's not how suicide works, <laughs> okay? very happy, Dave. She, okay? But, okay, but that's a temporary emotion in itself, okay? And maybe the oh. cat, being a lot more polit- emotionally and politically astute than your average human takes a look at the social fabric of the world and is like, this is not a world I want to live in where if you show compassion to other human beings, people call you a pussy. That's who I am. 
So it's a great argument. Um, but just to go back to the, the <laughs> that, that that notion that the environment and, and like I say, animals somehow wrapped up in it. Like you look at how people respond to those documentaries, and and you know it is interesting the power of the media. Like our love of you know we, I don't think people really thought they loved fish yeah. <laughs> until they've seen these films where they're like, oh, we're killing all the fish. It's very hard to get people to have uh, empathy towards, uh, not for creatures in general, but mammals are always an easier sell. Mm. We just identify with them aesthetically a lot more. Yeah. Whereas obviously fish and reptiles, etc., people are just like, yeah. Like when someone says, I've got a pet cat, you, you go, oh, what's your cat called? Someone goes, I've got a pet lizard, you just go, yeah, I'm actually quite frightened of lizards. Oh, well, yeah. And like, whenever like, I've got a friend who has a pet lizard, and, and uh, people always ask him to take it out there and uh, take it out, and I'm literally sitting there just being like, please, 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 <laughs> the fucking lizard in its cage. But also, I think it's perfectly rational, right? They were here before us, yeah, yeah. and as Jeff Goldblum says, yeah. if we're not careful, they'll be here after. Yes. and you just you just see it. Although. Uh, dinosaurs are the ancestors of birds. Oh yeah, you can mm. prove anything with facts. This, I guess, but you know. Although I do sometimes feel like a, a Jeff Goldblum, mm. and I'm sure you do as well. Yeah. When you kind of, you know, it's the same question of like spend so much time thinking about whether we could, we never stop to think whether or not we should. Mm. And uh, I feel like that's a big part of. Uh, but the, 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 just to wind this back before we wrap up this show is is. To me, that thing that happens to us when we look at an animal... So you have an animal in your life? No, no. I, I, I'm, I'm for, so I, I'm actually the reverse, right? Of the One of the many reasons I'm like out of touch is that I, like, someone's like... Give, like, it's like I, you know, I, when people talk about, like, you know... Oh, and obviously, like, period poverty and child poverty mm. is a problem. But do you know what? So is the poverty to go, I had a shit day at work, I just want a fucking curry. Yeah. It's a really important yeah. form of poverty, too. Oh, for sure. Like, yeah, the, the freedom to just spend your money how you want it is a hugely important freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but um, so, but I'm I'm in favour of other people having them, sure. and and you know, and if if your suicidal cat so makes you happy, <laughs> then it's not. Yeah. Su- my cat is not suicide. It's worth pointing. She it. could be every now and again. She lives with two creatives. Prim, I know you can't, can't listen to podcasts, but if you do, that might be why she's suicidal. Right, that's the kind yeah. of talk that's going to really do, help hurt her self esteem. Do you know what I have to say that the cat. Uh, at the weekend, <laughs> I haven't told a cat story for a while. Uh, we were watching a movie, and the cat comes in like shouting from the garden, like, and it does a different kind of meow, uh, and it's shouting that it's killed this mouse, and this mouse is kind of flickering in its mouth, and it's like just dying. So I get the shut the fucking thing out. It was like, well, well done, you haven't killed it. I didn't kill anything for ages. So I'm quite, quite proud in my way. And then she went out again, and I couldn't. I was like, fine, whatever. And then I just heard her crying at the end of the garden. Do you know what she's crying about? Like, she's making this weird kind of... Because like, the, the mouse died? No, no. Because <laughs> she's, she's found a fucking hedgehog and she can't work out how to kill it. <laughs> how to kill it. It's a really tough gig trying to kill a hedgehog. Like, I don't know if you ever... Look, I haven't. I mean, why, car, why? cars are very effective against them. I've had, I've, I've had my car. She hasn't against, got much of a motor. My cars, her, I've seen versus, uh badgers, pheasant, yeah. foxes. God, I remember that episode of Farthing Wood with the hedgehogs <laughs> on the road, Fucking on hell. the don't motorway. Yes, I do. It's just pro- oh, it's really. It, it's if you watch it as a child, it stays with you, right? Like, the hedgehogs. That's like, like wash it, to cross wash the it down as well, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. Oh, it's, it's harrowing. Yeah. But I, I, what I that giraffe from Toys R Us who went broke. Remember that guy? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember his name? Oh, what's his name? Doesn't Fuck. matter. They're broke now. That's what I'm saying. But the, the, the bit that I was getting at when I was bringing up whether you had a pet is, 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 is there's that feeling, a big percentage, you know, 16 million uh, cats in this country, 15 million dogs. That's a lot of people who've got a lot of love for an animal. And that, that love, I can tell you from personal experience, is a pure 
love. It's very different to how you feel about humans. But maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe I, dis- I disagree. You don't think the love is pure? No. I, it's, a, it's a very particular love, as in, like, you share something with this animal that isn't uh, based on a load of conditions that you've created verbally or, or psychologically. It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's a very simple I mean, you say that, affection. but a cat or dog can't tell you that you need to change a pattern of behaviour. <laughs> also, <Sure>. also <laughs> that cat... If you want that, to be pedantic, sure. But the thing loves me. The cat loves... Okay, let me tell you what... Let me tell you, let me tell you about love, right? Yeah. Love is when you wake up early, even though your alarm hasn't gone off yet, because you want to let the cat out of the kitchen, because you know it's probably bored in there, and it runs up to your bed, and you get back into bed for half an hour, and it lies next to you, and it purrs its arse off sitting next to you. That's, that's love. That's uncon- that, that is a deep love. And it, I think... Uh, it's pure, but my only question <laughs> is to pet owners is, if your cat wanted to leave your house, mm. would you let her go? I couldn't stop her. I couldn't stop her. And and you would so you wouldn't try to stop her. I, I would I would try and talk around if there's a verbal side of this conversation, but I mean I haven't got that on offer. Because I feel like <laughs> uh, while there is a pure love to the whole pet ownership, mm. I also feel like in in the same interest as like you know ecological responsibility, mm. I just believe reducing the biodiversity of species by separating them by breeds is counterproductive to their evolution. Sure, but on the slightly, I never, happier... I never had a pet though, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do always think yeah, I, I so. Oh, now, because I've, you know, I've said so many things to annoy before, one of the things I would ban in my ideal state, as well as you ban car in, cars in cities, you just have loads more buses. Mm. Um, I'd also ban things like crafts. I think it's cruel. Oh, it's oh, cruel. Yeah. You ban what? I'd crafts. Think things like crafts. I think yeah, it's, yeah. it's cruel Me to too. breed dogs. Yeah, yeah. They have, they Horse racing with, they end up, Yeah, it's just one of these. Some some, like the British bulldog has been so inbred in its like evolutionary mm. journey that they can't even conceive without the help of a vet but I'm, I'm yeah. still going to wind it back to the fact that there is a human feeling towards animals that is a very pure type of love. And if we could maybe translate that a little bit to our feelings towards each other yes. and towards the planet, it might create this political movement that uh, might save the world. Agreed. Says Howard Cohen, MP for Nowhere. Says yeah. Howard Cohen, feline suicide survivor. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a great time on this episode. It's been a great time, and it's uh, it's it's been a uh, I think a, a bit of political relief uh, with the impending election. Mm. So yeah, um, thank you so much said, for coming on. Thanks we, so much we hope for having me. a job, and it's been a real pleasure to have you on. As uh, Howard says, Stephen, uh, where can our listeners find more of your writings and, uh, and musings? Uh, so uh, they can pick up the New Statesman magazine. It's a good uh, magazine. I got into it for this to go for a lot of job interviews that I, for jobs I was never going to get, but they'd always have like a New Statesman in like the lobby, and I'd always grab one. Cool, great. that's brilliant. I, yeah, uh, I'm in favour of people putting it in their lot anywhere people will see it and feel yeah. obliged to pick it up. Or you can read my morning email. Just search New Statesman Morning Call, and then you get sort of. Uh, summary of news in the world and my analysis about a big story around the world or in British politics uh, every morning around you know, I don't like to commit myself let's say between the hours of 9 till 11am get it when he's ready everyone yeah it depends yeah. what blood he's had to give or croissants he's eating you know yeah. um, well thanks very much mate it's, it's been a real Absolute joy for pleasure, us Stephen. thank you very much and happy holidays you've been listening to Dane Baptiste questions everything Hosted by Dane Baptiste. For more from Dane, go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him at DaneBaptweets. Our guest was Stephen Bush. You can follow Stephen on Twitter at StephenKB. The show is produced by me, Howard Cohen. You can follow me on Twitter at the Howard Cohen. Thanks to Polly and Gelly. Hey, if you like what you've been listening to, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Thanks for listening. And remember, question everything. Question everything.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 